Hello, everybody, and welcome to Neo Kobe Pizza, the only gaming podcast that floats in soup. My name is Mark B, and joining me today is a good, close, personal friend of mine, online YouTube streamer, and generally a heck of a nice lady, Mrs. XG Janice. How are you doing today? Hello. I'm doing okay. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Thank you. So, this is a case where I had come up with the idea before I found the person that I wanted to do the podcast with. I had been wanting to talk about the general history of massively multiplayer online role-playing games, MMORPGs, for a while, just because this is something that I've seen more or less from its infancy all the way through to today, but I was never really in a position where I had anybody readily available who had spent an inordinately large amount of their teenage years playing as many of them as they could get a hold of until Jan and I started talking about it, and I realized, oh, okay, this is this is the person I want to have this conversation with. Yeah, it's sort of the same idea. We started talking about it, and then we got to a point where we're just like, yeah, no, this seems like a really good idea to just talk about. Absolutely, and it's it's I there's a lot of ground to cover, so I don't I don't want to spend too much time on you know the historical aspects and whatnot, but it it is really important to kind of lay the groundwork on this, just because God, there's just so much shit to cover, and like it it it, it needs to be said. Like a lot of the stuff that is kind of out there as part of, like, the pop culture of MMOs is just all over the place. So, I guess I guess we probably got to start out by defining the idea of an MMORPG. Just, you know, as a sort of a top-down, this is what it is for the purposes of this exercise. Because at this point, basically everything is a fucking MMO anymore. <laughs> I mean, you could consider, I mean... Think about Destiny. I mean, that's about De as close as Destiny you can get to be something that's an MMO. Destiny is that's... literally an MMO. It is. It is a massively yeah. multiplayer online game. It, it is. It really. I mean, that's 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 the general sense of what it stands for. I mean, MMO stands for massively multiplayer online. Doesn't matter what it is that you're playing, because you could be an FPS, an RTS, a, a role playing game. All of these things fall in this idea of the game is built specifically for only multiplayer like consider the original titanfall it was purely built only for the online multiplayer experience so it makes sense that yeah you're not wrong a lot of stuff nowadays is in fact always going to be multiplayer in some facet yeah though i do feel like there's a certain amount of distinction between titanfall and destiny in that titanfall is a game that's based on instant matchmaking where you're you're kind of just either in a match or you're not whereas destiny actually has a world that you are exploring and I think I think it's that aspect of it that qualifies the MMO part of it. Like there there have been plenty of attempts to try to make games where it's you're either in the world or you're not. So like, you know, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds mm -hmm. is is probably a game that you're gonna look at as, you know, instanced matchmaking. You're either in the game world or you're not. Mm -hmm. Whereas with, with Destiny, there's hub worlds that you can go to where people are hanging around. If you're in the world, there doesn't necessarily need to be an objective. You can just screw around and like wander the countryside doing whatever. And it's I, I, I do feel like like that's an important point to distinguish. So it's you know, like Call of Duty isn't an MMO. And it's it's not because it has a single player component, it's specifically because like you're either in a match or you're not in a match. Whereas like something like Destiny, even with its constantly connected status, 
is an MMO because it has an actual literal world that you wander around in. Exactly. I think a lot of the other things is that, like, when you really look at the idea of what an MMO is and where it kind of comes from, there's, like, there are so many different offshoots now, especially now. But it was interesting to sort of see where the genre sort of just grew and just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And people just kept doing these weird, wonky things like side-scrolling games and how many other types of ways that you could introduce the MMO genre to other people that may have been either really hardcore or really casual purely just based on what the game was actually based around or what the game itself portrayed like how it actually looked all at the same time because you just think to yourself this is an mmo i never thought about this specific thing as an mmo so it's like you know i'm just waiting for the on you know the, the online multiplayer cooking shows because that's a thing that's going to happen i'm honestly surprised we haven't already seen some kind of like mmo cooking mama type deal at this point <laughs> but and i mean like this is this is actually going to be important later on in the podcast so like keep keep that discussion in the back of your mind listeners because like that's that's going to inform a lot of where we go later on here but just for reference purposes mmo is a term that can be applied to any game where there is a massive world that you are screwing around in in some capacity whether it be something like The Sims Online, Destiny, Hellgate, Second Life, whatever. Those are all MMOs. They're not MMORPGs. Conversely, RPG as a video game genre is short for role-playing game. Now, I'm at, at, at the risk of getting a bit into the weeds here, I'm not going to get into the distinguishing distinction between RPGs as we understand them from a tabletop perspective and RPGs as we understand them from a video game perspective. Suffice it to say, we understand the genre of RPG to be based more around statistics management and things of that nature than truly playing a role. For the purposes of this exercise, just go with it. RPGs are games where the statistics, the, the structures and things of that nature, item management, so on and so forth, is a big part of the experience. The, the narrative is a part of that to whatever extent, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the primary motivator wandering around getting into these battles with these specific, you know, combat effects and, like, gear bonuses and statistical bonuses and classes and things of that nature is how you define an RPG in video game terms. And obviously, Final Fantasy VII and Dragon Age Inquisition are not on massively multiplayer online games. They're mostly single-player affairs. So, for the purposes of this exercise, MMO RPGs adhere to specific structures that make them both massively multiplayer online games that feature role-playing game elements. That said, I'm just going to call them MMOs from here on because fuck having to enunciate all that extra bullshit. You know, I think one of my favorite things is like when you really come down to it is, is just to understand that there was so many different ideas that came out of sort of the beginning of all of this. And I think that's really what really just introduced me and sort of just made me really like what they were doing with MMOs in general, just where it where it kind of came from and how it sprouted and how it grew. That to me, to watch this this simple idea of something grow from you have to dial up to get to the internet to be able to play this game to hundreds of, of millions of players playing these same games every single day for 
years. And I don't, I don't understand how that could have ever been a phenomenon, but you know, we got to a point now where there's addiction counselors for people who play online games way too much and neglect way too many things. Yeah. And I think, I think it's actually helpful to see like where everything came from to, to get to the point where we understand why this kind of stuff happened. So let's, throw ourselves into the Wayback Machine here and jump back to, Jesus Christ, 1974. This is this is before even I was alive, barely. So, like, this part of it is mostly from information I've been able to glean from general research. I was not alive at this point. But, okay. All the way back in 1974, the game Maze War was in development, which is basically a precursor to... First-person shooters, deathmatch first-person shooters, uh, MMOs, all, all kinds of shit just comes from this one game. At the time that it was being developed, it was originally developed as what would now be considered sort of a LAN party title. You would hook up via serial cable, and you would just wander around a maze and shoot each other. Pretty basic. Around the time that ARPANET, which is the precursor to our internet, essentially you can think of it as the thing Al Gore invented, was becoming a thing. The people who developed Maze War said, hey, we can make this compatible with ARPANET. We can make it so that it can connect people on the other side of ARPANET, no matter where they are, and we can play against one another. This was the great-great-grandfather of every MMO game that you have played. And from that, we started seeing developers sort of poke at the idea of what it meant to do things in a world, to do things in a world space. Things like Zork and Adventure came out and started informing the idea of what we could do with virtual worlds as a concept. So then all of a sudden, now that we've got Arbanet and then later the internet, and bulletin board services and things of that nature, we started seeing people create what are colloquially known as MUDs, or multi-user dungeons. And there are many, many, many kinds of these particular things, whether they be MUDs, or moos or mushes, or whatever. But they all generally work as text and occasionally GUI-based virtual worlds that you could go into and play a role. For all logistical intents and purposes, you can consider this, for for those who are younger than 30, to be the equivalent of, like, that elf-only-in-shitty-late-night AOL chat room that you would go into and pretend to be in the corner drinking your mead and oiling up your pecs or fucking whatever. <laughs> I can't be the only person who had to see that at least once in their life. Uh, no, I, I could honestly say that I was probably one of those people that actually did that by going into those chat rooms. Though it wasn't AOL. It wasn't AOL. It was, um, uh, we Prodigy. did a lot of stuff. No, it was through MSN. Um, there was an uh, MSN thing that we used to be able to do. It was back in the day, but yeah, it was, it was pretty terrible. Yeah. And I mean, you could, you could kind of sort of see the, the want for a virtual landscape, a virtual world where you could pretend to be another person for a while it for creatively minded people it, it gave you this sort of outlet to express yourself 
in a way where you would, you know, be around other potentially creatively minded people. And I mean, while most of this stuff usually devolved to getting a private room and cybering, the, the, the intent was there to create virtual worlds where people could interact with one another, not necessarily in a fucking kind of way. Exactly. Well, so, and I think just as an aside to that, it makes a lot of sense that this sort of evolved beyond just a text-based nature early on, because if you really sort of look at the the idea of what an MMO really all is at its like core, you end up looking at like LARP in general, live action role play. And you think, okay, I would like to be able to do something like that without this either a, depending on your biased stigmata or the ability to basically say, I want to be able to go and do without having to, to really put myself out in that sort of a capacity. I don't have that kind of stamina. I don't have that kind of ability, but I would like to be able to do what I can do in that same idea, but do so virtually. And I think that was really where it kind of started coming together and putting itself to a point where after, you know, muds and mushes and things like that really started picking up and more people started seeing that this adventure genre can be more interactive and can be done with multiple people at the same time that it made more sense for people to really start pushing it out past just the text. Oh yeah, absolutely. And not only that, it it's helpful from a wish fulfillment perspective as well because in some cases you're going to have people who are going to craft involved detailed characters who they want to represent in a digital format and then you're just going to have people who just want to be badasses and they just want to, you know, slay the dragon, save the princess and do whatever. So there's this idea in mind that if you create this virtual world and you create certain structures that the virtual world has to obey and maintain, you can get to a point where you can fulfill the wants of people to be unique in a world full of other people. They can participate with a large group of people, whether it be their friends, strangers, whatever. They can interact with others, but they can also feel like, you know, a god amongst mortals dependent upon how you structure this. So we sort of see that idea of trying to bolt systems onto massively multiplayer online gaming as early as about 1995 or 1996. The What is generally recognized as the first actual MMORPG comes out around 95 in Meridian 59, a mm. three-dimensional MMO that was archaic, I don't even know that that's being nice to say the least. It was pretty blocky. I mean, even by even by mid nineties, at least it isn't as bad as PlayStation One Harry Potter faces. But please continue. Yeah, it's it's even by its time period, it was not the most technically adept game. And to be fair. The thing that you kind of have to understand at that point is that 99% of your player base was going to be playing on dial-up. 56k modems were a thing that existed, but that was the best that you were getting unless you had like specific dedicated lines for internet connectivity. We were, we might as well have been a century away from 
things like DSL or cable modems or things of that nature for as far away as they were for us at that point. So data had to be transferred over a connection that was kind of shit, to be honest. And as a result of that, you you kind of had to deal with environments, structures, things of that nature that kind of looked like shit. It doesn't, it doesn't help that mechanically speaking, it, it's, it's based off of the same sort of stat leveling and PvP focused structures that a lot of the really early MMOs are kind of based around. So it, it, it basically just feels like it's trying to emulate what MUDs and D&D and things of that nature were doing in these spaces, but with visuals bolted onto it and combat mechanics bolted onto it yeah and i mean i think a lot of what they tried to do was was basic enough that it worked for what it was but it was still archaic enough that it was like niche because a lot of people were like i'm not gonna leave my mud for this i mean it's great i can see what i'm doing but it's like it's blocky and it's slow and it's archaic it it, it felt like um basically playing a virtual representation of the worst session of second edition AD&D you've ever played in your entire life. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like that's actually a really informative statement, the idea of I'm not going to leave my mud for this, because for a lot of these sorts of early attempts, you had games that had to bridge two different gaps here. You had to not only rope in the people who were regularly playing muds, or at least as many of them as you could manage, into your digital world to get them to endorse that idea and, you know, generate more publicity amongst those people. But you also wanted to try to get gamers who had never heard of this kind of shit before. Like, you know, a lot of people were getting into the Doom scene at this point, but the Doom scene is a far cry from pretending to be a drow elf in a text-based chat room. For a lot of people, that was just not a thing they were going to do. That was not even a thing that they knew existed at that point. So you're kind of having to introduce them brand new to the entire concept of playing online in a world with other people where other people are theoretically as important as you, but also not. It's an odd sort of disconnect, and a bunch of games tried it at that point. But only one of them was successful for various definitions of the word successful in those early days. And it's the game that a lot of people probably think of when they think of the very first MMORPGs, Ultima Online. Mm. Now, I do I do want to be clear. Ultima Online is like the sixth or the seventh game that actually came out that was an MMO anything of any note. Outside of Meridian 59, a, a bunch of other games beat it to the punch, including a game for Cadia which I did not know was that old, and until today, did not know, holds the Guinness Book of World Records record for longest-running social MMORPG. Really? Yep, I didn't even know that was a thing Guinness fucking handed out, so... Who knew? The longest-running MMORPG is is a game about furries. <laughs> just, that just seems utterly appropriate, somehow. Let that sink in a little bit there, bucko. Yeah, if it wasn't for the furries, we wouldn't have World of Warcraft. Uh. I mean, maybe that's not true, but anyway, so... <laughs> listen, some of my best friends are furries. But Ultima Online. This game basically comes out because 
and this is the simplest way that I can describe it. One day, Richard Garriott wakes up and decides, hey, I want to make a giant world where everybody can just do whatever. And he devotes umpteen amounts of man hours and dollars into making what eventually becomes Ultima Online, a world where people can fill all of the roles. People can be whatever the world needs. If the, the world needs a shopkeeper, you can be a shopkeeper. If the world needs a guard, you can be a guard. If the world needs heroes, you can be heroes. And it didn't necessarily work as well as you would want looking back on it. <laughs> I remember... That's quite the understatement. I remember my very first experience with MMORPG was uh, my mother's then-boyfriend at the time attempted to get me into Ultima Online. He had me create a character, and he tells me, okay, here's some stuff that you can do. Whatever you do, don't leave town. I said, why? Are there monsters? He's like, no, people will come and kill you. Like, okay. <laughs> and that was that was the way that Ultima Online was back in the day. You were generally playing PvP, more or less at all times. People would just wait outside of town for somebody to come out, and they would just fucking kill you. Nobody wanted to be the online janitor. Nobody wanted to be the online guard. Nobody wanted to do the kind of shit that needs to be done to keep an infrastructure going. So, concessions had to be made. Gary eventually, well, Gary and company, I should say. It wasn't just one guy making all of this shit. Gary and company eventually had to put in guards and NPCs that handled a lot of the day-to-day -day dipshittery that needed to be done that players didn't necessarily want to deal with. And they eventually had to make strictly PvE servers where people weren't going to necessarily be murdering the shit out of one another. I did not play Ultima Online for a long enough period of time to see how that sort of thing evolved. You know, once you start off a game with whatever you do, don't leave town. There's there's not really <laughs> it, many places you just can don't go don't care from there. anymore. Yeah, like I didn't I didn't really spend a lot of time with Ultima Online. It just I understood what they were going for, and I have talked to many players who have had great experiences long term in the in the PvP and PvE environments, and have actually noted that the PvP environments kind of sort of became respectable in yeah. that you know once there were frameworks in place and so on like people would treat one another generally pretty well because you never knew if that person that you were about to smart off to could beat the dog shit out of you whereas with like the pve servers everybody was just a shithead by all indications but by and large that game was very much also about stat management as opposed to character management it was about leveling up specific stats to accomplish specific things. It was, you would kind of log in and do a job or do a series of tasks in order to improve in a meaningful way for your character that was consistent with how you wanted to play the game. There was a lot of freedom in what you would choose to do and what you would want to do and what you would get out of it. But by the same token, it was very Wild West-ish in terms of, you know you could very easily get fucked by wandering out of town. I, I honestly didn't spend that much time with Ultima Online either. I spent, I, I played maybe two, maybe three weeks. It really wasn't that long. Honestly, I don't barely even remember what I did in it. 
you know, I, in fact, the only reason I even got it in the first place is because I had a bunch of friends of mine who were big Ultima fans. They'd played the original Ultima games and said, oh, it's Ultima Online. It's the same thing, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I never played the Ultima games. I had never really seen what the game series was all about. So I honestly didn't know what was going on. So I picked up Ultima Online and started playing with some friends and played for about three weeks. And then EverQuest came out. Yeah, EverQuest was the first significant instance of somebody attempting to actively challenge for the throne of most successful MMORPG during a given period. That game comes out around, I want to say, 1999 or thereabouts, and just systematically curb stomps Ultima Online for all intents and purposes. Ultima Online stayed around. For a while, the most successful MMORPGs do. I mean, they don't just evaporate overnight. Their player base doesn't drop out overnight. But EverQuest was really the first instance of having a truly functional, worthwhile 3D world to explore. And it kind of sort of tried to be an RPG as we understood it. Like, less so focusing on the stat management rather than the character job class level management type systems that we expect now. And it, it kind of focused on building a world where you would do specific things or you would want to accomplish specific goals or whatever in a way that, for, for lack of a better way of explaining it, kind of informed how MMORPGs have been designed ever since. And in a lot of, if not, like, at least for the next 10 years. I was I was never a particularly big fan of EverQuest, personally. I understood what it was trying to do, and I spent some time with it. But I found that the game, mechanically, was just go out into a field and beat shit to death. And <laughs> at the time when it first came out, you know, we were still dealing with Connections are trash. Everything is garbage. You can get kicked out of the game world because somebody calls on the phone. And it was just like, nah. Like, I, I could only devote so much of my attention to that particular game. <laughs> so I I can actually say with, with utmost certainty as well as a, a bit of awkwardness to say that I spent eight years of my life playing EverQuest. A lot of my... Early MMO history comes out of EverQuest. And in a time frame where other MMOs were trying to do the same thing that had different engines or that were trying to maximize based on the connection styles, where homes were slowly starting to finally get DSL instead of just dial-up, so you had a dedicated connection, these things were starting to sort of really start to crop up during, you know, the, the initial portion of EverQuest's lifespan, but to be fair, it it was still the dominant MMO, and in doing so, there was a reason why. Because for a lot of people who had been in uh, in the mud world for a number of years, saw what EverQuest was doing in that it was basically a graphical mud, at least in its original incarnation. You had the ability to open up a spell book and take spells and put them on slots where those were basically your learned spells. And you could only use those learned spells. If you didn't have it out of your book and on a bar, you couldn't use it. And the thing that was really interesting about that was that that felt like D&D. &D. That felt like the pen and paper RPG that people have been playing for ages. 
and we're we're looking at this game and going this is what we wanted this is where it works we know that this is what we need to do this is where we could actually go and have fun and and see it not just imagine it not just write it down on paper or see it on a screen in text we can physically see and we can physically hear all of the sounds and all of the just the the viscera of 1990s early 2000s sound blaster beeps and boops that sounded like weird animals crying out because you hit it for 14 damage the idea of being able to suspend enough disbelief that you could be a random person running around quenos heading out to go kill knolls and have to find a will will-o'-wisp to kill it to to take its its body so that you could use as a light stone instead of having to carry a torch in your offhand the entire time you're running around in the world it was it was this idea of fantasy come to life where people could finally say i don't have to be out in the public eye and have people see me like this i can be anonymous behind a character that's my fantasy that's exactly what i want my character to look like with the hair and the body and the weapons and the armor and the magic that makes me feel like I am as powerful as I need to be. And then I can get more of my powerful friends and then we can start seeing higher end content. And then you can start pushing into dungeons and then eventually into raiding, which is really where we start to see a lot of this idea and this concept of end game start to crop up in just in general. And while it wasn't, where it is, say, now, the idea of having large guilds, which back then were called uber guilds, because that's what they were. They were the guilds who were big enough and uber enough to actually go into this high-end, multiple-man content and kill these bosses that spawn once every 7 to 10, or even some cases, 12 days and then you have to wait for it to respawn before you can go back and try to kill it for more loot for your team. And a lot of these guys were much younger when they started, and then they grew up with the game and got to a point where they were so enthralled with it, but it had been out for so long that they're just like, ah, what do I do? I want to do more. I want my game that I love, that I grew up playing. I want to see something better. I want to make the games now. I don't want to just play them. I want to make them. And a lot of the people that were playing EverQuest at the time started developing. And I think that was a really keen sort of next step to putting out more and more MMOs that have the same idea of, you know, because you can go back as far as you think you can. But when you look at a lot of MMOs, especially now, you can still see the influence that EverQuest had on that other game. Yeah, and I, I kind of feel like the, the success of EverQuest cannot be overstated in any way. As I said, for me personally, it was not the game that particularly worked, but from the period of 1999 till roughly around about 2004 or so, MMORPGs went through what can basically be described as a renaissance period, where everybody was just trying to make an MMORPG because it was, for all intents and purposes, the land of fucking milk and honey, financially speaking. There was this base of players who had never really had any type of online exposure at all, 
outside of, again, deathmatch games in Doom or Rise of the Triad or whatever was your particular game of the moment, who were now suddenly able to enter into these worlds and be these magically empowered or whatever characters and perform functions in an environment that facilitated giving them the ability to be the hero. So you get this period where just so many games come out that are basically purchase a client, pay a monthly fee, be a hero, including games like Dark Age of Camelot, Asheron's Call, Ragnarok Online, Eve Online, Maple Story, Final Fantasy XI, Earth and Beyond, Star Wars Galaxies, City of Heroes. Just so many games came out that are historically significant within the confines of MMORPGs during this period because of how successful EverQuest was and because everybody wanted to get a piece of that EverQuest pie. I mean, at this point, EverQuest is basically a dead brand. The The, the core game still exists, but everything that is associated with EverQuest is basically dead. It's either been just shelved by Sony, or it's been taken offline, or in the case of, I believe it was EverQuest Next, they ended up canceling that project on the altogether. But for a while, it was the game. And I mean, for me personally, I ended up playing a lot of the also-ran games that were trying to be EverQuest just in different fashions. You know, I spent some time with Asheron's Call, which was basically... EverQuest, but by Microsoft. I spent some time with Ragnarok Online, which was basically Ultima Online, but with chibi-headed fuckers. I spent, you <laughs> know, with, 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 with EverQuest, anime, yes, with EverQuest mechanics bolted onto it. I spent some time in MapleStory, which was basically side-scrolling EverQuest, but for people who hate themselves. <laughs> oh, Korea. Yeah, we're, we're going to get there, believe me. Oh, but. yes. The two major games that I spent, well, the three, I should say, major games I spent most of my time with during this time period are Earth and Beyond, which was Electronic Arts attempting to get into the MMORPG marketplace with less than satisfactory results. At the time, there was not really a big marketplace for science fiction-based MMORPGs that wasn't already being filled by EVE Online, I suppose. City of Heroes, which is the game everyone played for a period of time during that period, because it let you be a fucking superhero. You could be yeah. Wolverine, just as long as you didn't call yourself Wolverine. Oh, there's a funny story about that, actually. Yeah, the the lawsuit. The yep. lawsuit. I believe... Yeah. Who was it? Marvel Comics? Sued? It was Marvel. Marvel so Comics the, sued the, the developers. The baseline was is that um, NCSoft got a cease and desist by Marvel Studios because they were attempting to use characters that were resemblant of Marvel characters. And so in doing so, created this lawsuit where they basically said, yeah, you can't do that. And so they had to completely scrap a lot of the ideas and turn them into their own sort of staple idea and change the way things were worded and manipulate the way certain aspects of the game were played specifically so that it didn't actually feel like you were playing in a Marvel universe, except for everyone that played City of knew that you were playing in a Marvel universe. So it was it was interesting to say the least. And I think that City of the City of franchise had a really interesting niche in that market at that time. 
because at that time, people were interested in two things, fantasy and not fantasy. And I think, and to this day, and I will, this is the hill I die on, I will say to this point, there is still not a good science fiction MMO that has ever been able to hold the interest of the general populace beyond its initial launch point. It hasn't happened yet. I'm hoping, I'm really hoping, in fact, I really wanted Wildstar to do better, and I was supremely disappointed, but that's another story for another time. We'll get to that. <laughs> I would definitely agree with you because history bears that out. Again, Earth and Beyond died within its first two years. Star Wars Galaxies hung around for a bit longer, but was never the game that was going to compete with anyone. Eve Online still exists, but that I mean, is not a game that is being played by multiple millions of players to the extent that the most successful MMORPGs have been. It has a dedicated player base, let's be clear, but like it is, it is not the game that everybody talks about, thinks of when they think about the biggest successes. The fact that Eve Online still exists in the capacity it does, I think, is... Fucking amazing. And I, I would say it is the closest thing to an outlier you're going to get to that statement. But beyond that's... that, yeah, no. Anything that's been sci-fi oriented has died within a couple of years. Or it's spreadsheets. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I but mean... I mean, there was another one that, that came out around the same time as I think EverQuest had just launched either its third or fourth expansion at that point. And there was another sci-fi MMO that was coming out around the same time as Galaxies. Um, and honestly, I would believe that Galaxies did as well as it did specifically because of the fact that it was run by Sony. If at any other company had tried to run that game, there was no way at all that that game would have ever done as good as it did. It wouldn't have done it. There wouldn't have been enough backing power behind it that people would have been able to actually go forward and say, this is a game that I want to spend money on. And this is a game that I want to continue to play beyond its initial launch cycle. Um, but there was another, there was another sci-fi MMO that actually came out around the same time. And I am absolutely blanking on its name. Um, oh man, I actually got it launch day because I honestly wanted it to succeed. Um, and it wasn't terrible for what it was, but again, you're still playing dial up in a game that was creating instances, which was, I think, one of the first games that actually started that process of what it would actually doing was it was creating uh, instances. It was creating separatized mini servers specifically for your character or other characters that you invited into that space because it actually had player housing. Anarchy Online. Anarchy Online. Thank you. That's the one. It had player housing. And I played Launch Day and I played for 30 40 minutes or so running around killing things wasn't terrible died a few times decided hey i know where i'm gonna go and i finally made my way to the the first main city after you start after your initial spawning which i might add was a really weird experience because you didn't actually start in a city and then go out to kill things you got teleported to a weird corral and then you had to go out and kill things and do quests for an NPC that was at the corral, and then you got to go to the first major city. I, who thought that was a good idea? I don't know, but whatever. At which point, I promptly found the NPC, bought my house key, 
walked into the room that would then be my house, and then promptly got stuck, couldn't leave, and was unable to leave that player housing for two weeks because of all of the problems that that game had on its initial launch. Good God. Two weeks I couldn't play that character. I'm like, well, this is pointless, and I stopped playing it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I feel like problems with gaming as a whole and MMORPGs will probably always be intrinsically linked. You know, like, think of all of the different problems that WoW has had. Think of all the different problems EverQuest has had. Think of all the different problems that Final Fantasy XIV has had, etc., so on. But that sounds disastrous, even by MMO standards, Jesus Christ. That said, I, I, do, I do feel like, while infrastructure was a big part of it, Star Wars Galaxies probably only succeeded as well as it did, not only because of having Sony behind it, but also because it was fucking Star Wars. Star like, Wars. Sony right. was probably not going to create EverQuest sci-fi and, and have that do any kind of significant numbers. And I don't, I don't know what the particular apathy point for science fiction MMORPGs is that they, they don't really generate a lot of interest in players outside of, again, EVE Online and its, you know, odd freemium model that has managed to keep it going for all this time. But outside of Star Wars Galaxies, the only there's only like one other science fiction based game I can think of that generated any kind of particular positive player response. And we are a few years out from that yet, conversationally. So 2004 is basically the year most modern MMORPG fans are going to recognize as being important because that's when WoW came out. And holy shit, did that fuck everything for years. So basically what ended up happening was a number of developers at this little upstart RTS company who had built games like Warcraft and Diablo had decided we're going to make an MMO. Mm -hmm. And they were able to get the feedback and criticism and players from one of the largest uber guilds and i might add from my server in fact when i played everquest i played on a server called the nameless this was also the home of legacy of steel one of the biggest uber guilds and one of the best uber guilds basically which you would consider a world first guild in wow at this point from everquest and of the people that were in that guild the man who actually called himself at the time tiggled biddies yeah. We all know who that is. Yeah. He and a few others from the guild, as well as a number of other additional developers from within Blizzard, decided we're going to make EverQuest the way we want EverQuest to be. And thus was born World of Warcraft. Yeah, and let it be known, World of Warcraft was essentially a mass reinvention of the genre at that point. It took mechanics that had existed in games like City of Heroes and whatnot and kind of applied them to a structure that was very different from anything else that had existed. And for people who have been playing EverQuest for four, five, six years, it felt like a breath of fresh air. The thing about EverQuest and the games that were specifically borrowing from that and I, I can speak to this as somebody who lost 
a real-time three months of my life to Final Fantasy XI, these games were very rigidly structured, and they were very much set up on this idea of level until you get to here, go through an environment that wants to kill you, level until you get to here, go through an environment that wants to kill you, so on and so forth. Like, I can't speak to EverQuest as an experience, but to, to give players who have only been playing in the past few years an idea of what kind of bullshit players put up with in the EverQuest model, this is, this is the grind to get to the first breakpoint in Final Fantasy XI. You would start from a town and attempt to level yourself up to approximately level 15. This usually took days, multiple days of solo play, killing monsters that rewarded progressively less and less experience points and were progressively more and more likely to kill you. Once you hit level 15, without question or exception, you went to a zone in the game called the Valkram Dunes. Because despite the fact that it was only a central point between two other home cities, it was the one everyone went to. There was another one of those zones that was also like a midpoint for the third city, but, you know, fuck you. If you didn't go to the Valkram Dunes, you were probably going to be sitting around with your thumb up your ass. And you would sit down on the edge of the Valkram Dunes and you would put your party flag up and you would hope that somebody needed you. If you were a tank or a healer class, you probably got picked up within about 10 minutes. If you were a DPS class, you probably sat baking in the fucking suns of the Valkram Dunes for an hour or more, praying to God that the moment that you got up to get a soda wasn't the moment that you either got an invite or that somebody trained a monster to zone, whereupon it would run back and systematically murder everyone in between its exit path and its initial spawn point, because that was how these fucking games worked. Monsters would never break aggro with you, and they would generally be powerful enough to murder fucking individual players like nothing. The only option that you had was to call for help, which back in those days, killing a monster that another player was hitting was a thing that you was generally restricted from doing because only the person who got the kill got the profit from it. So you would have to call for help, thus opening it up to everybody, and hope to God that everybody could kill it, and that it wasn't a fucking goblin, because it was a goblin in Final Fantasy XI, and it threw a bomb, it probably blew up everybody in the immediate vicinity. <laughs> I don't know why I spent so much time playing this game, but fucking whatever, buckle up, we're not done yet. So you would play in that zone for generally about five levels, from about 15 to roughly in the vicinity of 18 to 20. And then you would walk to Juno, which was essentially the central town where everybody spent the vast majority of their time at this point. You would have to walk through three different zones featuring monsters that were highly aggressive and dependent upon your level, you were probably 20 at this point, could mostly kill you in one hit. If you died, you had to wait there and pray to God somebody running by would resurrect you, or you would have to teleport back to town and try again. It sucked, and I'm not a fan. Once you got there, you would then go into a zone directly attached to Juno called Clefim, where you would fight for about three levels, three to five levels. Then you would have to go to three different dungeons that were situated on like the ass ends of the earth to get three different keys by fighting monsters 
dead in the fucking bottom of these dungeons that were at the ass ends of the earth from one another so that you could turn them in to get a pass to a place called Kazam, which would then take you to a forested zone, like a jungle zone, where you would kill things for five levels. One of the zones was disconnected from the other by quite a ways of distance, such that leaving, the only options available were a black mage teleport, because only black mages could teleport in that game, which meant that if you played as a black mage, you essentially did a side gig as just teleporting people around for shitloads of money, or you blood ported, die and return to home point. On, on the subject of black mages, also keep in mind that in, in 11, you didn't get to just port wherever you wanted to go. No, no, no. You could only be ported to a very specific temple-like location in the middle of that zone, which, generally, was surrounded by monsters that were anywhere between three to five levels higher than you and could one-shot you or two-shot you simply because you weren't paying attention if you got too far away from that temple, and you found yourself without enough gill to get a Chocobo to get you where you needed to go. Yeah, there's there's also the point of Chocobo handling in general was not set up in the way that it's set up in games now, where you would just rent something and it would take you somewhere so long as you had been there before. You would have to go through a literal three-day-long training thing to get them to give you the ability to even rent one in the first place in oh. 11. And then it would you would tell it, okay, like I'm going to rent this, and you could just run around on the bird. But you had to be cognizant of how much time you had. If you ran out in the middle of or towards the end of your trip, well, you're just stuck in the middle of a zone where there's millions of monsters that probably want to kill you. And if you jumped off the bird... Well, you're just fucked, and you're in the middle of a zone surrounded by monsters that probably want to kill you, and et cetera, et cetera. And it's, this isn't even detailing the idea of the sub-job system where you would equip a second job that you could have where you would have to level that job up to a certain amount, which meant that you had to grind a second job up to, at the bare minimum, 18, more likely probably around 35 or so, or the fact that completing the sub-job quest required you to kill three specific monsters that existed in the Valkram Dunes, two of which were undead and extremely difficult to kill unless you had somebody standing around healing your group who was, like, way higher level than you while you were doing this shit. And it also doesn't address the idea of spending, like, ten levels in a zone called the Crawler's Nest where you were just fucking fighting the same goddamn bugs for hours and hours and hours or how it could take upwards of a day to get a single level unless you had a static party. And even then, like, progress was still at a crawl in a lot of cases. Or level cap breaks, where you would be capped at a certain level, like 50, 55, 60, 65, 70, and you would have to do quests in order to break your level cap to limit breaks, I believe they were called, mm -hmm. to get the next set of five levels. And let us not forget the fact that for a number of years, there were experience point penalties in these games. If you died, you lost experience points that you had earned. There were days where you would log in and play the game, and it would have been more profitable to have not done it. Now, the thing that I find, and, and I think this is probably, not to get too far off topic, but to get kind of back to where World of Warcraft is, to, to put yourself to a point where a lot of these MMOs at this time were still using the archaic idea of what is known as spawn camping. 
what this meant was is and this was an everquest terminology this is something that happened in everquest there's a lot of things that you're going to start hearing eventually now that we're getting into more modern mmos trust me that were all coined from everquest because these are the things and these are the places that actually started because of everquest Camp spawns were basically what that meant was is it wasn't like instanced like a dungeon is now. You can go into a dungeon and there's eight specific points where mobs will spawn and that is it. And there was only two ways to actually get those mobs to your party. And no, it wasn't just run up, hit it once, kill it a few seconds later and then move on to another one. No, 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 no. No, you would you would have to you would have to as they called it in Final Fantasy XI, uh, fishing, you would have to pull. Yep. You, you would basically have to attract somebody in the group, generally one of the damage dealers, but occasionally the tank, would have to pick a monster and attempt to get access to that particular monster without pissing off any of the other monsters in the area. If you attracted more than one, you were probably dead. Nope. If you got one... You probably could handle it. In some cases, if you were slightly higher level, you might get away with being able to kill two, but that was only if maybe you got an extra healer from another party that just happened to be nice enough to actually heal your party as well. And then at that point, you would wait for anywhere between three to, in some cases, depending on the area, ten minutes before that one mob would respawn and you'd go back out and pluck it off and run back to your team and kill the mob again. And in some cases, you could do chain pulling, which meant I could pull one, and right before it was dead, I could run out, grab another one, bring it back, and we could kill a second one, and you would get chain experience, which means now you're not just getting the base experience for the kill, but you're also getting a small percentile increase bonus because you just killed two back to back. Some really good statics in any, any sort of specific way uh, could probably pull off a six or a seven or even in some cases an eight chain before they either had to stop because their white mage had to because of mana concerns or they just needed a break because at that point they had probably been fighting nonstop for somewhere in the realm of, and I'm not exaggerating this, 30 minutes. Combat back then, let's just be honest, it was very low-powered. EverQuest was low power, Final Fantasy XI was low power, and the only time you really saw that big burst damage was when a big special ability went off, or in the case of XI, when you actually weren't able to pull off a TP combo. When you hit 300%, and they hit 300%, and then all of a sudden you got this elemental chain bonus, and spells are going everywhere, and effects are flying all over the place. That was when it really saw this big power boost, and you could see things take, like, instead of having a full health bar it went down to like a half health bar in like two hits and even then that was that was very minuscule it was very slow combat wise that brings me back to wow when wow launched and they had this idea of soloing content consistently through questing and through damage output it was mind-blowing for everybody and it was part of the reason why I think personally why it was able to pick up as fast and as good as it did was purely just because of the fact that I could solo. I didn't have to worry about sitting in a central town for an hour just so that I could kill one mob at a time. I could go wherever I wanted to and start 
killing everything I wanted to kill without having to worry about whether or not I was going to run out of abilities. Yeah, and I mean, like, so many things were changed because of how WoW worked. Like, soloing... In, in Final Fantasy XI, soloing was only feasible as one class, Beastmaster. And it was very wonky and took way too long as a concept. If you wanted to level a character from zero to whatever cap was at the time, this could take weeks. This could take months. I know people who devoted three, four, five, six months of their life to that game and never saw a character to cap, not one. And in WoW, you could solo, monsters would die relatively quickly unless you made bad decisions about what to pick fights with, and it was entirely feasible to go through what the game expected of you without having to sit in a field for a fucking hour praying to God somebody needed you, and that you could stay in a group for long enough to have actually made it productive to bother walking in. It completely reinvented the progress system of how MMOs worked and actively chose to focus on the idea of raid content being something that should be challenging, but not to a point where it disrespected the use of the player's time. Mm, tell that to Molten Core. Well, I mean, to the extent that it wouldn't take you six months to get there. Truth. The, the idea, though, that and then the thing that I think was really interesting from my personal perspective, so I, I did that sort of progression route. I started with EverQuest. I played a lot of the side MMOs and continued to play EverQuest. I moved to Final Fantasy XI for about three months, and then WoW came out, and I was on the fence because I loved Blizzard games because I had played... Uh, Diablo and I had played Warcraft and Warcraft 2 and I, I had really enjoyed those worlds and to ne to know that they were bringing Azeroth to life in, in an MMO format where instead of you were the hand that controlled the armies you were now the person who was getting into the army to be controlled by the hand it was a completely different experience in a completely understandable and lore rich world and a place that I knew what was going on it wasn't just here you go, here's a game, have fun, play it, your character in it. What's my motivation? You know, you didn't have that. You had this big established lore and, and world that you knew these people. You knew the King of Stormwind. You knew who Thrall was. You knew all about the trolls and all of this stuff. It was there. It was, it was available. And I think a lot of that was so simple. I, I, it's the only word I can think of when I think about that game. It was so simple to just say, okay, I don't have to think about why I'm here or how come I, I need to do this or kill that or whatever. It made sense. And it put it all together in this, in this almost linear but not quite fashion that was just like mind-blowing. And then I finally started playing it and I was just like, this is what I wanted. This is This is... This is what EverQuest should have been. This is where I left and, and wanted to step up into. This, it made sense. It Logically, it was the next step, and it made sense to me. And it made sense to a lot of players. I think it's interesting also to kind of see the direct and immediate effect that all of that had on how MMORPGs were handled, not just from a 
existent games perspective, not just from a development perspective, but from a investment perspective. World of Warcraft comes out, a whole bunch of games kind of hemorrhage players at this point. We don't we don't see the Titans go under. We don't see EverQuest die off. We don't see City of Heroes die off at the time. Like it it eventually goes under a few years later. We don't see Final Fantasy XI die off, but games that were kind of holding on by a thread take major hits and find it financially untenable to continue onward. And a lot of companies who had begun investing in general were rapidly seeing that well, there's only so much space for MMOs to exist because people are only going to pay so much money on a month-to-month basis to play these things. So the development cycle stopped being about releasing a paid client with a monthly fee and started going towards the idea of freemium content. And this doesn't happen right away, necessarily. Like, these sorts of games are around and doing things in 2004 and 2005. But this doesn't start becoming a significant model that people are aiming for until 2005, 2006, when Asian developers... In a lot of cases, let's just call it what it is, Korean developers realize, hey, if we just develop 20 different clients and just throw that shit at the wall, somebody's going to play enough of this that they might buy some content and it'll make some money, right? So around about this point, you start seeing less and less pay-to-play MMORPGs. Like outside of WoW, City of Heroes, and like, you know, EverQuest, Final Fantasy XI, at this point, the games that come out that are pay-to-play are games that you probably have not heard of unless you have been very in the weeds with MMOs. You know, Uncharted Waters Online, Dark and Light, stuff like that. Stuff that a lot of people did not play. Rather, most of the games that are coming out at this point are, you can play this for free, but here are options that you can undertake if you want to give us money. Uh, for premium currency or for specialty gear or things of that nature. Stuff like Perfect World, Rose Online, you know, uh, Dynasty Warriors Online, Dungeons and Dragons Online at one point. Guild Wars. Guild Wars falls into a different sort of niche there, I think. True. Guild Wars is a game where you pay for the client, and then at the time you would just pay for whatever incremental updates existed, like expansion packs, things of that nature. But the actual experience of playing it was generally free. True. I mean, they had they did have some cosmetic things that you could get specifically with cash. And that was really sort of the idea, or at least the birth of, like, there are two different cash shops. There is a cash shop for cosmetic, and then there's the games that have the cash shop that's purely pay to win. And, and obviously that'll come into play later down the road. Um, I think it was right around this time, right around the end of my time with EverQuest and right before World of Warcraft came out was when a lot of the consoles were really starting to see add-ons. Because uh, this is right around the time of right towards the end of uh, the Dreamcast's life cycle. Um, it had actually gotten in with um sonic team and a couple of other internal developers um and created um and if you're familiar with uh, rpgs in general you will know the name fantasy star 
Um, and that's spelled with a P-H, not an F. Um, Fantasy Star was sort of like Sega's kind of attempt, I guess you could say, to sort of... To do Dragon Warrior or to do uh, Final, Final Fantasy. Fantasy exactly. Game, right. To make a, a Sega-branded Final Fantasy or Dragon Quest style of game. Well, with the Dreamcast and the addition of the ability to get a 56K modem for it, you could play Fantasy Star Online. This was a niche offshoot action RPG, but it was an MMO. And the reason why it was an MMO was twofold. One, it had lobbies where you could log into a mini lobby, find other people, and then join a game lobby that could support you and three other players at a time. And then you would go into your main lobby where you had access to your bank, shops, and then quests where you could go in, talk to a specific NPC, and then take you and your team down to the world of Regal and kill monsters and beat bosses and complete either a PV, uh, PvE story or PvE co-op content, which allowed you to continue to progress your character to the maximum level and start working on getting rare drops and picking up other items. This is important. The reason why Fantasy Star Online is important and a lot of people miss it or skim it or don't talk about it is because what Fantasy Star Online did for the both the ARPG genre and the MMO genre does come into play later on when we diverge from a larger market of MMORPGs and go into a much broader market of everything's an MMO, which we talked about at the beginning of, of the podcast. Well, part, part of this conversation kind of goes back to the conversation I had way back in the beginning of the podcast with Robert Hubbs on Sega's history of missteps with JRPGs in general. But I think part of it also kind of is informed by the fact that, like, like some of the Fantasy Star Onlines are generally considered to be MMORPGs, though Fantasy Star Online has a decidedly more action bent. Like, I think you can make just as much of an argument that Fantasy Star Online is the precursor to what we know as the hunting action genre, more so than anything else. So... Like, there's, there's, there's kind of sort of a, this is Sega's attempt at existing within the realm of MMORPGs. In general, consoles really don't do anything with MMORPGs for a while. And if we're being honest, we're still not at a point where there are a lot of success stories as it relates to console MMORPGs, but... Mm-mm. Fantasy Star Online is is definitely the one of the one of the few that we can point to and say this game was a success. Yes, I I could say that PSO was one of them. I think the other thing was the fact that uh, Square Enix had made the wild and I mean wild decision to allow the Final Fantasy XI to be playable on PlayStation Two. It there was actually a full kit that you could buy that had the hard drive for the big boy PlayStation where you could actually slot it into the back of the PlayStation and then use the disc to load the game to that and then use the modem that was built into the PS2 to allow you to play that and then use the USB ports to plug in a keyboard and then you would use the controller to play the same way you would on the PC versus having a keyboard and mouse. You would still have the ability to use the PS2 controller and a keyboard to communicate with people in Final Fantasy XI. So, and the other thing was, is that 
the the PlayStation 2 version and the uh, PC version were interconnectable. They were playing, you know, you could still, you could have people that were playing on PlayStation play with people who were playing on the PC. It was rare that you ever found them because they tended to be um, sort of separated by just sort of what server they were on because most times the ones that were playing, there was a limited amount of servers that you could play on that was both PS2 and PC, and then there were some servers that were just PC. You didn't have any PS2 players on them until much, much later. But the idea that a console could be used as a device that could be used for MMOs, while still kind of, eh, not really nowadays, was really just coming into a light where this is something that could happen, and I honestly think was part of the reason why most modern day consoles have hard drives in the first place. Yeah, I feel like there's there's definitely a lot of reasons for why we ended up seeing that sort of evolution. Like Microsoft getting involved is a huge part of it, just in general, because anything they were going to develop was going to have a hard drive in it, whether we wanted it or not. But like the the idea of attempting to get this sort of a game to get games with online components to get games with online add-ons attached eventually was going to need a place where you could store that data consoles up to that point had been well there's a little bit of storage space there to save games maybe or there's a memory card that you can buy that'll do it but microsoft said well if we can get a hard drive in here people can install games eventually they can download content and then by the time the xbox 360 comes around shit we're just downloading games all over the place so it's there's definitely that evolution forward and i think there's a lot of things that ultimately motivate that to happen but the idea of trying to get a mmorpg to be successful in this environment has to be a motivating factor just because like look at the everquest games that had come out on the playstation 2 mm -hmm. and how badly that shit tanked oh god yeah, I mean, Final Fantasy XI had a player base on the Xbox 360, but it was not in the same realm as the PC. It had a player base on the PlayStation 2, but it was, like, one of three games that supported the PlayStation 2 hard drive. So it's... it's There was definitely a push to get storage space in there to get MMOs over as a concept. I just... I, I, I think that... Like, basically, up until DC Universe and then later Final Fantasy XIV, we, we didn't really see a lot of great success stories in that particular wheelhouse just because there wasn't, there, there wasn't really a lot of drive to get there, to, to even, for that to even work in the first place. Around about this point, the, the, the market is now basically being flooded with just freemium shit. NCSoft and Nexum and all of the other associated developers have just started making these kinds of games. I'm trying to think about some of the ones that I played around that time, like games like Vindictus. If if you're familiar with the other version name of that, I believe it was also called uh, Mabinyagi. Mabinyagi, yeah. Well, no, no, because remember, there's two different. Ver there's actually two different versions of Mabinyagi. There's Mabinyagi, which is the anime MMO where you play the your anime life. But then there was, in Korea, Vindictus was actually originally called Mabinyagi Versus, or Arena, uh, or something like that. 
it had nothing to do with the Mabinyagi game, but it was called that for a while until they finally decided to just make it Vindictus. I actually played Vindictus a lot, but that was really where you started to see, it was around this time, personally, that I started to see a lot of these freemium Korean-led companies that were coming out with these games in the States, creating web portals to download free MMOs, where mm-hmm. it was all cash shops. Some of them were pay to win because of PVP aspects. Others were all purely cosmetic where games were just like, Hey, this is a game to play. But then you realize that after you get about five or six levels in that they become this grind fest, there's no additional content. There's no world outside of the lobby. It's not like you can go around an open world. Like you could with world of Warcraft, final fantasy 11, it was, uh, you know, these the, the 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 big daddy MMOs had this big, beautiful open world where you could go and do anything you wanted to at any time. But then you had these grindy MMOs with uh, a re-release of Maple Story, Vindictus, pretty much anything that Nexon was releasing. All of these games were grind fests. You'd go into a lobby, make a party, or even go out solo and just kill stuff over and over and over until you finally got to enough levels where you can go to the next dungeon and do the exact same thing over and over and over again. Uh, There were so many different games that had so many different gimmicks to hide the fact that that's all you were doing. There was no open world. There was no fantastic adventure. It was such a grind fest with just prettier coats of paint on it there's another one that i was uh, that i actually really did enjoy but again grind fest um that i thought had a really unique mechanical system uh granda espada the the key selling point was that your main party was actually three characters yeah, that was, they were the all family time. members i remember that game yes, that game was great i loved granda espada the aesthetic, the outfits, the armor, the weaponry, the the timeline was fantastic. Grindy as fuck, but it was fantastic nonetheless. Yeah, I spent I spent a lot of time with that and with SMT Imagine during this period. Yes, I remember the SMT one. It wasn't terrible either. But then at that point, you're thinking to yourself, there are still bigger big daddy MMOs that I would rather play. I would rather go play 11 or I would rather go play WoW or heaven forbid at this point you're, you know, 12 expansions deep into EverQuest or somebody who actually (laughs) played EverQuest 2. Let's be honest, that was a mistake, Sony. There are so many ways that you could look at how this sort of evolves all of a sudden. Like the market floods, just floods with this idea of free-to-play MMOs even though we know, we know that these games are never going to compete with the big two, which in this case, at this point, is Final Fantasy XI, which may not have a large market share, but has enough of a market share for people to be playing it and know about it, and World of Warcraft. Yeah, and that kind of brings us to where we are now. At this point, where we are with MMORPGs as a concept is that, generally speaking, you're you're kind of in this position where outside of Guild Wars and Guild Wars 2, and like the few other games that are borrowing from that particular concept, you are generally seeing games that fall into one of three categories. The first category is freemium games, which 
fucking pick one at this point, you know, black, <laughs> black rose online, you know, just there, there's like a million of the goddamn things at this point. You, you, you can't throw a stone without hitting a, a freemium or free to play MMORPG paid games that eventually became freemium games, which is Wildstar, Star Wars, the old Republic, Elder Scrolls online, secret world, you know, games where they had a subscription model in place. They, it didn't work. But they had these frameworks, and they said, all right, we'll let you play for free, but we'll give you benefits for paying in some capacity or another. And then the few paid games that consistently generate cash on a, you know, a month-to-month basis, which is like World of Warcraft, Final Fantasy XIV, and like the, the, the odd Japanese games like Dragon Quest X that are doing this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, that's where we are now at this point. Like, the vast majority of MMORPGs are freemium or free-to-play in some capacity or another, and only a couple of companies have games that are consistently making their month-to-month budgets that they need to stay active and generating new content over periods of time. And it's... Like, I, I feel like it's kind of informative to look back and go, well, what the fuck happened and where do we go from here? And from the what the fuck happened perspective, I want to kind of dig up that point that we talked about way back at the beginning of the podcast, where I mentioned the idea of everything having become a an MMO. When everything is an MMO, it's not special to be an MMO anymore. You know, if, if I can go out and I can buy Destiny for $60 and that's an MMO, even if it's not an MMORPG, it's an MMO, you know, why do I care that there are 20 different free-to-play MMOs or paid content MMOs? Like, you need to do something else. You You need to do something unique and special in order to really get muster with that, to really draw me in as a player and keep me for a period of time. And a lot of games just aren't or weren't doing that. Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of it was, like, if you really think about that time frame, I think it was around the same time that Diablo 2 was sort of in its heyday as far as, like, just action games in general. Um, and there were a lot of people who were trying to do that as an MMO, but in a different in a different space um there was games like uh hellgate london where it was basically first person shooter online multiplayer diablo uh, it was kind of like the precursor to games like borderlands and destiny which used the same loot system as the original diablo which was fully randomized loot that can drop from a specific mob that has specific stats as well as static loot which is why and this is why it came from pso was that certain bosses or certain mobs only drop this specific item and you have to farm that specific boss to get that item to drop if that's the kind of playstyle you're going for like specific weapons drop from specific bosses for specific classes this was something that was distinctly taken from Fantasy Star Online or other MMOs at the time that were doing that same sort of action push. There were other games like, for instance, and and I'm just going to go to sweep in pretty much all of the sci-fi MMOs at this point, 
this is really why I'm at this point where we are is where the sci-fi MMO is really starting to pick up a lot of steam and then fail, fall flat on its face. You have games like Tabula Rasa, Hellgate London, which all these games failed and fell flat on their face. And then you get games like The Old Republic. Bioware had this great idea and EA was going to host this fantastic Star Wars MMO and it was going to be the, the best things in sliced bread. And Star Wars can carry your MMO, but it can only carry your MMO so far. Uh, and then you have a game like Wildstar. When Wildstar initially launched its uh, PR campaign, they basically said it was WoW in space. And a lot of people were like, well, that's really burp, burp. And that was around the same time that, if I remember, they released their announcement for what it was, what it was going to be like and showed gameplay around the same time that Final Fantasy XIV... 1.0 was either betaing or was about ready to launch when they announced Wildstar. I, I think I have my timing right, and correct me if I'm wrong on that. No, I think that's I think that's about right-ish. It's in that general vicinity. The thing that was unique about what Wildstar was doing is it was showing telegraphs, and this is something that is sort of if you play either Wildstar or 14, you know what I'm talking about. Basically, what it is is this icon or targeting on the on the ground that would radiate in a specific style that would show you hey an attack is about to hit in this general vicinity you should move and if you move you don't get hit by it which again another facet of mmos that hadn't really been seen up until this point because up until that point it was all dice based literally everything no matter what, was always RNG dice-based. I either block, parry, dodge, or I get hit, or I get critically hit, depending on how it actually works. That's just the nature of pen and paper, and that's the nature of MMOs up to this point. So this was revolutionary when it came to just the base mechanics. This was also around the same time as MMOs that were more action-orientated with Twitch-style combat. This is another offshoot of the MMO genre. It is still an RPG as you play it in the RPG sense, but it is more action MMO orientated because of the combat system. Games like Terra, for instance, which, you know, is a unique experience in its own right, considering the character models, but that's not what we're talking about. Um... But the idea of what these games were trying to do, while still being in a science fiction world with elements of fantasy, worked out to a point. And I think that, and I'm, I'm going to go out in a direction that I think is a bit left field for pretty much everybody, and including probably a large majority of the listeners, um, in saying that... I believe that Final Fantasy XIV, in its own right, is technically both a fantasy and a science fiction MMO. And this is purely based off the, the fact that typical, last, and current-gen Final Fantasies play in a world that is both fantasy and science fiction. Final Fantasy VII, Final Fantasy VIII, Final Fantasy IX, Final Fantasy X, pretty much everything from seven on, even including XV, all have some elements of both either modern or science fiction 
items or locales or worlds in general mixed with the fantasy elements that we have grown to enjoy in previous Final Fantasies to Final Fantasy VII. Giving it this hybrid feel. Which brings me to another point, and I am unsure if you know this, but as of, I believe, last week, Final Fantasy XIV has officially announced that it has reached the 10 million subscriber mark. Previously, the only other MMO, to my knowledge, that has ever been able to hoist that sort of number was World of Warcraft. This is big deals. This is big news. Yeah, I don't know where EverQuest topped out at, but it was... It, it, Two mil. I don't think... What's that? Two mil. Really? I thought it was yeah. higher than that. Nope. It was two million. Yeah, and the reason right. why... Yes. You think about how big EverQuest really was and how big influentially EverQuest as a game, as a, as a base point, really was. And you think, wow, it only ever topped out at two mil. And the reason why Blizzard and Kaplan and, and all the other people were like, wow, man, we got a million people and we got it in like months and EverQuest took a couple of years to get to a million. That's crazy. Uh, we never would have thought that this was something that could have happened. And then they hit 15 mil. And now Final Fantasy 14 is at 10 mil. Like, woo, talk about bar. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's crazy to think that where we started and where we are now has just blown out like you could follow one line straight across and then watch it splinter into so many different directions towards the end of the life point of where we are today, right now, that you can think about where we started, where we are now, and see all of these offshoots and all of these goods and bads and things that worked and things that didn't and games that took from other games that were successful or failed or whatever. And then you saw little bits and pieces. You're like, hey, I've played that game, but then it's also this game. So it's like three of these games played into this new MMO. I like this idea, but then there's all these other aspects of it. Like there's so many games that could have been revolutionary. Games like Rift, Ion. Um... Oh, what's the other one I was thinking of? Shoot, I was just thinking of another one. That, uh, uh, But... The baseline was these kind of games had this great idea of opening up the baseline of what the MMO genre is about. Like Ion, who I wanted Ion to do fantastic, just like I wanted Wildstar to be a, a popular, solid, well-played game that a lot of people play to this day. Sadly, they didn't work out that way. Ion was one of these weird Korean NCSoft games that had a really good idea at start. And then it kind of got to a point where you're kind of like, that's a little grindy, but it's an MMO and it actually plays like a normal MMO. So I'm okay with that. And then you get to the end game and it's all PVP. And I'm like, I'll pass. I'm good. Thanks. I tried. I played. I didn't like the idea of flying and PVP at the same time and wondering whether or not my connection was going to be stable compared to the other people in my party. I'm not going to handle that. Um... You know, Rift had a great idea where originally when it first came out out of beta and into actual launch, what you could do is you could have three character trees. So you for progression, you would actually have three trees and you could pick whichever 
class trees you wanted to and put them into each one of your three. Now, eventually, they got rid of that and made it so that you only get specific set trees. But there was a point in time for a while there where you could pretty much make your character however you wanted to. Um, sort of in the same vein as what um, uh, uh, Archage was trying to do. Again, another Korean grindy MMO that was purely based on a subscription base or a pay-to-win model of, here's my cash shop, here's the freemium content, oh, and by the way, the only way that you can actually see A, endgame, or B, in-game housing is if you pay money for it. Uh, you know what? No, that's not for me. I'd rather just in play the game, enjoy what I want to enjoy, and not have to worry about it anymore. But then you come down to, this is what we know works, this is what we know doesn't. And so far, there are still only two or three major games at a time. And while you see all these splinters and offshoots and other types of games and genre bursting and all of these things where all of these people are like, hey, this is a great game. Oh, it's a great game for like an hour. And then I'm going to go back to the games that I actually enjoy playing. Because we've all become so dependent on this idea of if I don't have the ability to play with multiple other people, where's the fun factor in this? Where's the co-op? How do I experience this game? Well, not only that, it, it also comes down to the fact that at the end of the day, again, everything is a massively multiplayer online universe now. So it's, even if we look at it from the perspective of, I don't need other people to do whatever, why am I going to pay money for two, three, four different pay-to-play pay to games if I can just get that for free from a one-time purchase and a lot of different games are offering that experience to some level or another with little or no cost I mean you're not going to sign up for a subscription for more than one game maybe two at any given point in time and we know this because games that were based off of a subscription model outside of World of Warcraft and Final Fantasy XIV have, by and large, started to be an endangered species. A lot of games that were based on a subscription model have gone to free-to-play or freemium-type content models because it's the only way they can stay alive. And people will commit to these games periodically and come back to them and invest a small amount of money and then the subscriber base keeps X amount of stuff going and whatever. But by and large, you've maybe got like a million, probably less people who are subscribed to those games and just keeping them alive on like three or four different servers. Because like, why would you feel the need to do this sort of thing anymore like why would i feel the need to sign up for marvel superheroes or dc online there are multiple different games that give me the experience of just jumping around a giant city as a superhero that don't necessarily have a multiplayer component to them and if i had wanted that kind of multiplayer based component city of heroes would still exist it's, you're not going to see a lot of people who are like, I need to have some specific genre-defining MMORPG. Like, they're, they're just going to go with one of the ones popular. And everything else can be fulfilled on some fundamental or another 
by one of the many different games that allows for multiple people or large groups of multiple people to play in an environment that doesn't cost me 12 bucks a month to pay for. If I want to do a science fiction MMO, I'm just going to play Destiny. I'm just going to play Borderlands. I have no motivation to play Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic or The Old Republic or whatever the fucking subtitle of it is at this point because I don't, like, there are free games or, you know, games that I just buy a one-time client for and I'm good. I don't need to pay 12 bucks a month to do that. If I want to get that kind of experience, I can get that in Mass Effect or one of the other games that BioWare has developed. And I can also get that in Destiny and things of that nature. I don't, I don't need to shop around. I can just jump on one of the games that everybody else is playing and move on with my day. Exactly. Though, though, to Tor's credit, to Star Wars The Old Republic's credit, they have started releasing single-player specific content that you can get only if you're a premium player or that you pay a flat rate for. Like, you buy a small expansion for $20 and you have an entire new five-level cap and a, uh, a full single-player multiple-chapter experience that's purely just yours you don't experience it with other people it's it's traditional bioware rpg style content in an mmo based game which i think is actually a really interesting concept but it's also in generality not no and no longer an mmo at that point now it's just an rpg and so i think that the idea of i have an mmo world that i can play in or I can use the same engine and play single-player content depending on what I'm feeling like doing at that point in time. And it's interesting because instead of creating endgame content as you would see it in most traditional MMOs, such as raiding, you would see instead additional storyline content that you can unlock and grind through and level up and do all of that stuff as well and get just the same amount of rewards out of the story content as you would out of the rating content. I see this as an idea that, while maybe many people don't know about it or don't care about it, I see this as an idea of sort of how Bioware is answering the call of the console MMO like Destiny to create season passes for additional expansion content or additional weaponry. This is their answer to that idea of you can still have your MMO content and still have your MMO world, but also be able to use that MMO client to play a very well-crafted, voiceovered, clean, single-player experience all in the same engine, all in the same client, all at the same time. And I think that is a unique idea that I really do want to see more of. Because let's be honest, if I'm playing an MMO, there are some times where I want to solo, but I don't want to have to solo my normal MMO content. I want to be able to see a story. I want to be able to see something unfold in front of me, which is the entire reason why RPGs exist in the first place. Be it an, a Western RPG or a JRPG, it doesn't matter. It's about the story. And that is something that Bioware has done with, with Tor, and I think to its credit is actually something that's very smart and very ingenious when it comes to that idea. It could be also said that there's the same sort of idea behind the MSQ or the main story quest in Final Fantasy XIV, where it's released episodically. Once you complete the main story quest, you can go do side things such as raiding and doing 
uh, the endgame content or PvP or all this other stuff, but you're sort of left wanting. What's left to do? Level other jobs? Level crafting? I mean, that's typical MMO fare. But to see something like this in, in Old Republic where you can go and actually continue to do additional storyline content that isn't base in the main story but still allows for character progression, that to me, that's the next step. I want to see more of that. Because I think having that as really helps lend to the longevity of not just the engine, but the game itself and the player base's expansion. Yeah, and I definitely feel like we're probably going to see a sort of a hybrid thing that tries to cater to the casual story-focused player or just the story-focused player alongside the hardcore rating player and everything in between. And I kind of sort of feel like 14 has been doing that to a certain extent where every couple of months they'll release new storyline-based content to go along with whatever amount of new dungeons and new raids and new eight-mans that they've unleashed so that they're keeping players occupied as far as development of the narrative goes until whatever next expansion they have lined up comes out. And I, I kind of feel like that's eventually going to be the model all MMORPGs, well, all that aren't premium beat-the-shit-out-of-things MMORPGs go with, where it's going to be a case where there's this robust single-player storyline that you go through that is about you as some kind of great and mighty champion of justice, and there's going to be expanded single-player content to some extent or another, whether it's in the Bioware mold where you actually have, like, character developments and relationships and whatnot that go on, or whether it's story-exclusive type stuff that's, you know, further telling of the grand tale that exists in the world, alongside raid content, alongside dungeon content, alongside stuff that's going to cater to the hardcore-type players. And I think it's kind of interesting that MMORPGs are kind of starting to take this balanced approach to single and multiplayer when so much of the early days of MMORPGs was kind of multiplayer to the exclusion of all else. Mm -hmm. I, I, I really think it's interesting that we're getting to this point now where they are kind of sort of starting to try and emulate single player RPGs but with content that requires you to interact with players occasionally, just because it's, it, we're getting to this kind of point where 10 years from now, there may not be subscription-based MMORPGs. The next Final Fantasy may just be an MMO, but without any kind of a subscription model. The, the next Bioware game, well, the next Bioware game that isn't some shitty looking fucking third person shooter look at me i'm a crab people <sighs> andromeda why i'm not even talking about that i'm talking about the next one that they fucking announced oh i don't know that i heard about this we'll talk about they, that later yeah just but the next game that bioware releases in the dragon age universe because they've apparently shelved the mass effect universe for the foreseeable future the the next game that they that they release in the Dragon Age universe may be an MMO to some extent or another. There, we may start seeing more and more of our single player 
RPGs have online components. And at that point, like, in, in 10 years' time, I don't even think the MMORPG, as we understand it now, is going to be recognizable. I think Final Fantasy XIV and World of Warcraft will probably still exist. I would not be surprised if somebody eventually ends up shelving Final Fantasy XI and EverQuest in that time period. But fourteen and WoW probably still exist. But I would expect that we're going to start to see more and more games kind of try to redefine what a single-player RPG is and start to encroach on MMORPG territory till it eventually gets to a point where you're seeing single-player RPGs with MMO elements, and at that point, it's like, why do MMOs even exist? Like, mm -hmm. in, in, in 10 years, I think I think MMOs are so... going to be a dying breed. I, I, I don't know that it'll be a dying breed, but more along the line of, like, the norm. Like, I think everything is getting more and more... Well, and more MMORPGs, as we where... understand them, I'll put it that yes. way. Like, where there's yes. that subscription model, or there's that freemium model, or whatever those are going to be dead like they're not they're not going to exist in the way that we in the way that we understand them right now it, it's going to be it's going to be a case where they're just going to be rpgs with mmo elements associated and it's it's you know 10 years beyond that I I imagine that it's very possible that every RPG will be an MMORPG just without a subscription model associated. Mm -hmm. Most of them will be free. Some of them will have content. Some of them will be, I have to pay for the client. I mean, honestly, I think that's just where it's headed. And I also think about like where other splinters in the genre are going to be going. I mean, look at Destiny 2. Destiny 2 is, is, is being launched in multiple platforms and this time we get a chance to play it on pc where before it was a purely a console experience um you know blizzard activision said we're putting it on on the battlenet app oh great more games for me to play and then it's like there there's this idea of um like this is like this is where it's headed everything is going to be provided to you via a content device steam origin um you play uh battlenet whatever global baseline that you use is going to provide you with the content that you need or that you want to sort of for lack of a better term plug you into what you want to play so that you have the ability to basically sit there and go this is what i want to play today i'm going to play that tomorrow but in the general and grand scheme of things everything is online Everything is multiplayer or co-op in some capacity to a point where you don't just play games by yourself anymore. Yeah, and I definitely feel like there's still going to be a certain degree of market for single-player experiences. Like, there's there had initially been a lot of pushback towards the idea of multiplayer-only first-person shooters, as an example. Look at the death of Mag for an example of that, but... Destiny eventually got the appropriate reception that was expected and more. And we're we're kind of at a point now where online play is becoming more and more feasible for more and more markets and more and more people want that to be a thing that exists. I don't know for certain that we're going to see everything incorporate 
an online component just because we've seen a lot of games do that and suffer for it to some extent or another. Like there, there's been the backlash of this needs to be a thing that stops happening. But I, I definitely wonder if we're not eventually going to see this point where every game has some type of functional online something regardless of what it ultimately does. Sure. I mean, like, and if, if we're really talking about that whole idea of the, the game is only multiplayer and it's only online, um, I mean, Destiny is definitely a, a, a big ups to that since that was sort of really where it, it started to kind of really be public. Like, people finally started seeing that. This is a thing that occurs. Um, another, another really good example of that in that same genre would be um, Tom Clancy's The Division. I think that really falls in the same line. Obviously, Destiny 2 is going to probably play the same, and it might have some tweaks and changes here just because Bungie. But the baseline is is that it's still going to feel and play like that same sort of of content. It's going to play in that same sort of, this game is only playable online, and it's only basically playable multiplayer. Even though you may do stuff singly, you may go up solo, uh, there is still a need to do, you know, you can only do... Um, dungeons and raids in a party the only way to do them it's the only way to experience them unless you're really really good and do a lot of damage because let's be honest that has happened and does happen on the regular in both in you know in destiny and taking king um but the baseline is that you know this is a thing that still can be done generally must be done in a group and only available via online means um, so it is It is still a thing, it is still a possibility that eventually you're going to come into a point where this is something that's the norm. Um, we're, we're already getting to that point. I mean, these games have been out for a few years, but there are more games on the horizon that I think that we're going to start seeing this be the norm. This is where everybody is headed, and, and I, I would agree. I would think that you're getting to a point now where online is just synonymous with gaming. If you're not online, you're not really gaming for a lot of people. And in some cases, yes, because you're still playing a lot of the single player experience and things of that nature. And I get that, but those games are falling more and more by the wayside. And multiplayer is really taking that, that forefront that a lot of people really want to see. I mean, even in games that you wouldn't even consider, um, being something that you would expect to be more than just like local multiplayer it would be like sports games like FIFA, Madden, MLB. All of these games can be played and are generally only played online now. So it's it's well, they're, it's they're a adding in story world. modes to a lot of they're adding in story modes to a lot of those games too, which is its own brand of fucking awful. But oh god, I I have to admit the one in FIFA isn't terrible, but the rest of them are just why. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, but the baseline is, is that the multiplayer functionality of these games is tailored and built towards an online only experience versus the old days of the late 90s and early 2000s of couch co-op of going over to a friend's house and playing Madden and bitching at each other because you're screen looking when somebody's picking a different play or something, you know? Yeah, it's, it's just where it is and it's where it's headed and it's where things are going to continue to head because that's just the advent of what we want as people as as gamers and i think that in 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 sort of my ideal like setting you've got this great game that plays with both a really smooth polished powerful single player experience that allows you to also 
go and experience additional content or side content that can be done in small groups of four or eight or even like say for instance the larger 10 or 20 depending on how you know which game you're playing you know you can go into uh, you know world of warcraft lets you flex raid which means you can have anywhere between 10 to 30 people in a raid or you can go in and do what Final Fantasy does, and you have a four-man, an eight-man, or a, uh, a 24-man. You get three eight-man teams going into these dungeons. Um, you know, there's always a way of being able to do these sorts of things, and it's just a matter of time before we eventually get to a point where not only is it the norm, but it's expected in the game. And if it's not there, then what are we going to do? No one's going to be interested in it anymore. And I think that I'm, I am both excited and afraid to see sort of where this is going and to see what's actually going to happen next. Um, it, you know, like, I can see that there are plenty of beloved franchises that are going to really start integrating multiplayer as almost a necessity, and in some cases, like, almost a hindrance if you don't play it multiplayer versus trying to play it solo. Yeah, and I, I kind of think that is about as good of a wrap-up point as we're going to get to, that at the end of the day, the MMO as a genre, the MMORPG as a genre, is probably ultimately going to fall in line with just being MMO as a, a type of universal constant, where more and more games become massively multiplayer online games, and it stops being a matter of the MMORPG being this specific genre and more of it kind of just folding into the MMO experience where it's just, oh, this is another kind of RPG. Oh, this is another kind of FPS. Oh, this is another kind of sandbox game. Whatever, whatever. And I think it will be interesting to see what stays, what goes, what functions are retained, what functions are excised in how this sort of stuff works together. I don't know what the next 10 years are going to bring, but I definitely feel like it's going to be interesting. But on that note, I do want to say thank you very much, Jan, for coming on the podcast today. I Absolutely. appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And if you liked what you listened here to, if you liked what you heard here today, uh, be sure to like, subscribe, and comment. You can find the podcast over on SoundCloud, so long as they stay in business, over at soundcloud.com slash markbwriting. The podcast also hosted on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and any other places that host podcasts at this point, basically. If you want to follow along on the internet, you can follow me over on Twitter at markbwriting, and on Facebook at markbwritinghome. And Jen, where can they find you at? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ExcaliburMite. That's uh, with an X, and it's M-Y-G-H-T. And uh, you could also find me on Discord, because that's where I spend 90% of my day. <laughs> um, yeah, I know that feel. Yep, and you can always tag me on Discord at Janice, hashtag 9065. Alrighty. On that note, join us next week when our topic will be why Nexon is basically the devil. On behalf of XG Janice, this is Mark B. Writing saying, stay safe out there, junkers.